0: Questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I got a couple of new shirts and I'm very excited. Do you ever just get excited? I know Sean's like, that one's got poofy sleeves. I'm like, that's why I bought it. Um anyway, just felt very exciting to get something new because I haven't for a while because I knew we were moving and then we moved and so you know, chaos. Um, But anyway, just checking in. How are you? How are things going? Let's take a minute. Let's really think about it versus what we automatically want to do, which is say, I'm fine. Which, no, as I tell my patients, I will not accept fine as a a response or a reaction. I need you to think about it. And if I think about it, I'm actually doing pretty good today. I think giving myself permission to take one week off from Monday videos, which I know seems so trivial and maybe not that big of a deal but it's a huge deal to me. And I think giving myself an option or the opportunity to take care of myself or to prioritize my own well-being just felt very freeing. (sighs) So I'm doing good. Without further ado, let's jump into your questions. Okay. Now the first question today says, what is or are the most common things where a client thinks they are the only one, but really a therapist hears it all the time. What might be the most surprising? Now this got a lot of thumbs ups and it kind of cracks me up because at first I was like, oh, are there anything weird that people think they're the only one? There's so many. First of all, we always think we're the only one. We always think that. We think everything is weird. The way we think and feel is wrong or something's off. I don't know why we always think that way, but we do. It's just how we are. I think it, like my hypothesis would be that we feel and think that way because we don't tell people how we feel and we don't talk about the things that we think might possibly be weird because we don't want someone to tell us that we're weird. Therefore, we continue to think we're the only ones. And when we get into therapy, we think we're the only ones. Um, Like I've had patients who think even like that they're the worst case I've ever seen or that uh, I've had a patient who thought one of their sexual fetishes, which was uh, a certain kind of underwear they like to wear. It was very weird and I hadn't heard about it for spoilers. already heard about it. Um, I had a patient who thought that the, their rituals around self-injury was so weird. Nah, already heard about it. Uh, eating disorder behavior. I mean, you name it. I don't want to get into details and trigger anyone, but already heard about it, already seen it. Not weird. Um, Yeah, even like thoughts that we have about ourselves and even the thinking that we're weird. is not weird, it's very normal. Yeah, I honestly believe that everyone thinks that they're the only one. And sure, you might be the first one we hear it from, but you will not be the only one. The thing that the more I've uh, been online, to be honest, because I can talk to so many more of you than I can just in practice, but even when I have my private practice, I, it's like, everybody thinks (laughs) that their situation is weird and that they're the only ones. And the more that I've been online and the more I've talked to people, the less you can surprise me. I don't, I don't even know if I can be surprised if I'm being honest. And I doubt you could come at me with something that you're doing or thinking or feeling that I haven't already dealt with. I mean, I had a patient... I mean, I don't want to give away any information. But anyway, I've had like strange piercings and tattoos that were done as a way to cope with trauma and as a way to self-injure. And I've had people who, you know, again, like weird sexual fetishes that they think no one's ever heard of before. I've had quite a few of those. Um, Yeah, anxiety thoughts and uh, behaviors with family and yeah, all that stuff. Reenactments of trauma. Yeah, I've heard it all, I think. I mean, I'm sure there are things out there that I haven't heard of yet, but that doesn't make you the only one. That just means you're the only one that has told me specifically. And yeah, what I was going to say, and I got off topic was the more I'm online, the more I realize just how, how not alone we are. I think that's a really powerful thing for all of us, but especially those of us with mental health issues is that our brain because it hasn't heard from anybody else or no one else has talked about it, hopefully that's happening less and less because more people are talking about it. And especially in our community, people are so courageous to share their own stories and are willing to be vulnerable so that they can know that they're not alone. And then other people can also know that they're not alone. But anyway, I feel like the more that happens, the less this will go on, but we still have a ways to go. And so a lot of people before being able to talk about it or get on into online communities about mental health, they just think that something's weird and that they are the only ones because obviously if you haven't talked to anybody about it you are the only one because you didn't give anybody the opportunity to tell you about it and if you know anyway long story short all things are common things I hear a lot about uh suicidal self-injury thoughts and people thinking they're the only one I hear a lot about thinking I'm the worst case or it's never going to get better and I'm the only one going through this yep grief can tell people I've had patients think that their grief they're the only one that's having trouble with their grief and reacting the way they're doing or the way they're reacting I mean not the only one um yeah I mean you name it you guys panic attacks a lot of my patients think they're losing their minds and they're the only one that's ever gone through that Mm -hmm. again not the only one. Yeah all sorts of stuff, eating behavior, self-injury behavior, uh, inner child work or trauma stuff like trauma reactions. Always think we're the only ones. Only one that's used drugs or alcohol or sex or the only one that uh, had an orgasm during sexual abuse. Not the only one. Um, Yeah, you're not the only one. Okay, let's move on to question number two. But that was a great question. And it was funny at first when I got the question, I started making a list. I was like, this list is never ending not really worth it. Okay, question number two. Says, hi Katie, how do you handle a client that appears to be really struggling at the very end of a session? Oh, that happens all the time. It's usually due to attachment, but I'll get into that. As in, about to burst into tears and very obviously just trying to hold everything together, but unsuccessfully? I have complex PTSD and my biggest triggers are feeling dismissed or abandoned. I've been in therapy for over a year now. At one of my last sessions, we talked a lot about my lack of self-worth and not wanting to take up space in others' lives. And I was doing okay until the last couple of minutes where a whole wave of emotion came over and I got really overwhelmed. My therapist saw what happened, asked about it. I told him and he listened. I mentioned the little amount of time that was left and he said to just go and sit in my car and let it all out. Mm -hmm which I understand. But with everything we had just talked about, it felt like he was confirming that I was taking up too much space. If I had stayed in an extra couple of minutes, so I didn't suppress anything. Hmm. I was his last, last session, so it's not like he had another client waiting for him, and I've never stayed late before. Any advice on how to bring this up with him while still respecting his time and the, the time limit of sessions? Okay, this is great. And something that I used to deal with all the time, especially when patients know they're the last patient. If they struggle with this kind of thing, they always have this urge. I mean, you said you didn't, but I had a patient who used to always want to stay late. Um, So, okay, now let's get into this. Now, when we have, when we have the urge, or when we tend to struggle, okay, if we struggle at the end of a session, it can happen all the time. Something that is really important when it comes to being a therapist and having healthy therapeutic boundaries in order to continue having a healthy therapeutic relationship is to hold space and respect time. Now, the reason for this, meaning that at 50 minutes... I'm usually ending, I do not run late by the way you guys, in my office, rarely. If there's like an emergency or someone's really like melting down, I may go over by a few minutes, but I almost always end before that hour so that I'm not late with my next patient. I hold firm. And what that means is that I would say something like your therapist said to you. I'd let you talk about it. And I would say, go sit in your car and let it out, and then check in with me, send me a text or email later today just letting me know how you're doing. I won't reply, but you know that I will read it. Try to contain, hold boundaries. Now I know you might be thinking, Katie, that's really harsh and like they're having a hard time, you should let them stay. Here's the problem with that. Now in therapy, for the type of therapy I do, especially because I deal with a lot of BPD, complex PTSD and eating disorder behavior, boundaries become something that we, we as patients struggling with that can try to push. Because of that fear of abandonment or feeling dismissed, we can push the boundary in order to try to, by passive behavior really, try to prove otherwise. And it's not that I'm trying to prove that I'm abandoning you or dismissing you, but what I'm proving is consistency. Consistency is actually more therapeutic than being able to stay an extra few minutes. I know, I know. You're thinking that this might be really harsh, and that. but what I'm actually internalizing is that I am abandoned. Okay, that's important for you to tell me in our next session so we can talk about that. And I can also talk about the structure of therapy and why it's important for you that I am consistent with my times. Meaning I, when your appointment's at three, for me, this is how I hold. When your appointment's at three, we start at three and we end at 350, 355 that's what you can count on. And I will hold firm to that so that you know that that's what you can count on. And over time, that consistent showing up, starting and ending in the same roughly amount of time, starts to feel healing. Because when we struggle with complex PTSD or even BPD, the inconsistency and not feeling contained. So if I overstep those boundaries and let you overstep them, it will feel a little, might feel good at first, but then it starts to feel a little out of control and you'll try to see how far you can push it. I learned my lesson back in my early days of treatment when I worked at the the Center for Individual and Family Counseling in North Hollywood, is if you let someone kind of push them, they'll, they'll feel less contained and start to kind of not uh, melt down, but they can have a, an intense emotional reaction to it. Because I know it seems weird, but that consistency and that containment for that specific amount of time is actually really healing. Does that make sense? I hope it does because it's not done in any way to abandon you or dismiss you or make you feel like you can't take up space. It's more about being consistent and containing it. And also, and then what I loved and why I was like, I probably would have done this exact same thing as your therapist is then they said to sit in your car and let it all out. Meaning I know you are able to soothe yourself. In a way, I'm giving you an opportunity to kind of reparent or work on that, like do some of that inner child work where you can allow yourself the space to feel what you need to feel and calm yourself down enough in order to be to safely drive home. And I would have done the check-in just because I do worry about getting home safely and not dissociating and all that stuff. Um, Yeah. So, so that's kind of what I would have done. But, but yeah, I would. So that's why that happens. And so what I would encourage you to do, since it seems like in a way it was very harmful to you. And even though I do believe it was the best thing that they could have done, I would bring it up in your next session and just say, you know, last week or two weeks ago or whatever, um, when I was kind of falling apart at the end of session, you told me to go to my car and you know, let it out. I felt very dismissed and kind of abandoned. And I know that comes up a lot for me, but I want to talk about this because I don't know why it came up so strongly in this scenario. That's the best way to go about it. Because instead of what, what our urges, especially when we have complex PTSD, or even those of those of us with BPD, which there's quite a bit of overlap in symptomology, if you don't know, but is we want to blame someone or blame ourselves, So that's kind of how we operate is kind of through this like emotional volatility, right? Our emotions can feel like they run the show. We don't have control over them. They run the show. And so I would assume in this case we're mad and we're hurt and we kind of want to blame our therapist for doing that to us and why wouldn't you let me stay for those next few minutes, da-da-da-da, right? Even if we don't say that out loud, we might have thought that and that's okay, okay? But we need to be curious about all that brought up for us and why... That was so triggering. And how did it go? Because this is what I would talk, if you came into my office and said what I said to you, like, I'd like to figure out why this was so such a strong reaction for me. I would say, okay, well walk me through what happened when you left. Okay, what were some of those automatic thoughts? Can you remember? And I'd probably wait for a bit, and it'd take you a while to recall. We'd write some of those down. Katie's such a jerk. She left me hanging. I feel like I don't belong. I don't deserve to take up space. Uh, I'm abandoned because I was having a hard time. I know I'm the last patient. What I would, which I would dig into with you, um, my patient. So I could have stayed later. Hmm, interesting boundary pushing, right? You know, whatever those thoughts were. And I would work through them with you. So then I'd say, okay, so then you sat in your car and like, what came up for you then? Were you able to let it all out? Or did you find yourself shutting down? Hmm. You know, why do we think that is? Let's dig into that a little bit, right? Were you able to make it home safely? Okay. Mm -hmm. Were we able to soothe ourselves? Okay. And then if you weren't, my mind would go to, maybe we need to come up with some coping skills to help you better self-soothe so that we can manage that better next time. Hmm. Okay. And then I would talk you through, again, the boundaries of therapy, which I do almost I feel like at least once a week back when I was in my private practice all the time, have to remind people about those boundaries and why they're important. And anyway, long story short, I would walk you through it and dig into what came up for you and why, and then talk about the boundaries in therapy and how they're important talk about why the boundaries feel kind of uncomfortable and then we would even play a game called what if i let you okay so because i've done this with my patients too like what if i gave you permission to self-injure what if i gave you permission to use your eating disorder what if i gave you permission to stay past the hour what do you think would have been accomplished well i would have been i would have proved to myself that um, i can take up space and i wouldn't feel abandoned do you really think so do you think you'd been able to pull it together how long do you think you would have needed how much time should I have given you? Those are questions I would ask. A lot of my patients don't have an answer. Oh, I don't know. I would have thought so. Just maybe five minutes. What if you weren't better in five minutes? Then should I give you another five? Well, yeah. Well, what about that? Then do I, after I've given you 10, do I give you another five? And what I'm trying to get people to understand is how that lack of boundary and that lack of containment can actually cause us, because here's what's, here's what happened to me back in the day and how I learned my lesson. Is a patient let me push it out because they knew they were my last patient i pushed it out 10 minutes okay they went bye-bye next week they wanted to push it 10 just for starters and they became so emotionally overwhelmed at the end of every session my supervisor ken who i loved god bless ken he was amazing he told me he was like you need to shut this down because there's going to be no end, because it's like a, uh, you know, teenagers especially, but even children of any age and adults too, if we have any trauma or any issues in our life, right? Which we all do. When we when you give us an inch, we want to take a foot. When you give us a foot, we want to take a yard, and we just keep pushing out, pushing out, pushing out. And that's what my patient was doing. And when I held firm to that 50 minutes, and boom, okay, I'm sorry, we're out of time. We'll pick this up next week. Remember to do, you know, da da da, your homework. They were upset at first. They came back next week, mad that I cut them off. I explained the boundaries. And guess what? After two weeks, no more emotional overwhelm at the end of session. Guess why? Because they knew session was going to end and they knew how to soothe themselves and they were forced to use those tools, which is what therapy is all about. Now, I don't know if you agree with me. But those are my thoughts. I would bring it up with your therapist because I think this is very helpful information. This is really good to dig into. And this tells us a lot about what we probably need to work on and it's good to know why in this case it was so upsetting for you. Because everyone's gonna be different with why it's so upsetting, but we need to be curious about it and dig into it so we can learn. Does that make sense? I hope that's helpful. And I hope you know I care and love for all of you and my patients, but Some things that kind of feel counterintuitive, you know, like in this case, it's therapeutically beneficial and there's a reason to holding firm to that line. Okay, now there was a comment as an add-on to this question. It said, as an add-on, my therapist invites me to send quote unquote updates in between sessions so I can feel like she's there for me and it's okay to reach out and take up space. Every time I send something, I feel like it's too much. I don't know if I should stop sending these as it makes me uncomfortable, even though she asks for it or if i should give it more time to, if i should yeah give it more time as it um, to combat this feeling of not being worth it thanks for all you do okay great question again please tell your therapist this is what's coming up for you tell her that you don't feel like you're worth it and you struggle to send these updates now as a therapist we don't ask for something if we don't want it so the fact she's asking for it kind of tells me that that's her way of you doing the work to prove to yourself that you are worth it and that you are important, that you're valued, that she sees you, that she hears you, and most importantly, she's there for you. And so I would bring it up because I think in that you'll see all the reasons that she's having you do it. And like I said, we won't, I've said this before in other podcasts, not like I said, because I haven't said it in this podcast yet, but I have said it before that it's through discomfort that we're able to have real change change doesn't occur without a little bit of discomfort so the fact that this is uncomfortable tells me that we're on the right path and that we are learning like a new way to love on ourselves show our worthiness and really show up for ourselves okay there's another question one more comment said similar to this how to deal with emotions hitting you like a truck when walking out of the building it seems like I hold back the feelings and let them come when therapy is really over. So common. My psychiatrist, I do therapy with him, is aware of this. So he walks outside with me where we do some small talk while I smoke and after we go our separate ways. This helps a bit, but it always happens, especially after rougher sessions like trauma. I sometimes spend half an hour crying on a bench before I feel okay enough to make the journey back home. Is there a reason this is happening? How do I make it better? So great question. Um, I had a patient like this as well. Now, part there's a couple of things. Okay, so this happens because often when we're doing the work in therapy, it's like we're in it and sometimes we can numb out so that we can continue to stay in it. And I don't mean numb out completely. I just mean like not have this like overwhelming emotional response that like won't allow us to participate. We can just like white knuckle it through therapy. We're like present, we're able to do the work. Ah, and then we, have, we get to stop doing the work and we're like, ah, and we kind of feel this like, sigh of relief and we can kind of let ourselves feel it and that might be you feeling it alternatively we could have you know been white knuckling in session and barely hanging and maybe i don't know you'd have to tell me if you're present or not but then sometimes once that stressor meaning the therapist or your psychiatrist like pushing you along that stressor is removed then we feel all the things we've been numbing out from it can go either way and that's something only you would know um, and it's good that he knows about this and then comes outside with you. But I would talk to your psychiatrist about it a little bit and just say, I'd like for this not to happen. Because here's what I do then with my patients who kind of fall apart and have a tough time. Like I've had patients tell me, you know, I had to sit in my car for an hour and a half after our session um, just to calm down so I could get home safely. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, we're doing too much. So first of all, I think we're either doing too much or moving too quickly through trauma or, you know, whatever we're working on. And maybe we need more care. So what what I mean by that is I have instead of doing single sessions with my patients, I've done doubles. So instead of like 50 minutes, you get two sessions. So you get, you know, almost 2 hours, but like 2 hours and 40 minutes. That way we have time to get into it and then we have time to come down from it. So like the last half an hour might just be us like debriefing, making some small talk, doing some breathing, soothing so that you can go out and feel good and get in your car and be fine going home. Or maybe you just need like five minutes to sit in your car and go, and then go you know whatever but i have done that with a lot of patience or if i know this is happening i might end the session meaning the work in the session like a 10, ten minutes earlier than before and see if that helps us give time and space for that it, we make it work however we can, you know, depending on whether you can afford double sessions, if I have time in my schedule, you know, all of these things that you have to deal with with your psychiatrist and stuff, but there are ways to kind of end session earlier so we can feel more contained before we leave. Because the reason it's really happening is we we don't feel, I don't even know what the word is, I've always called it like feeling buttoned up, like at the end of something it's like, okay, let's put this back together until next week. It's almost like... um I don't even know of a good example because I don't really repair a lot of things, but you know when you just repair something enough to get you through, like let's say uh, I know we're getting rid of this chair I'm sitting on because it's, it's falling apart, but oh I have a good example. Okay, my old bed that I had when Sean and I first started dating, I got this bed off of Craigslist and it was like a sleigh bed and it was really, really nice. However, because I'd moved it a lot, because I'd moved like three or four times with it, it started to get really loose, meaning The little clips that hold into the wood to hold it all together had like the the little screws had come a little bit loose and the wood itself had come loose from like the brackets. And so if you like sat on the bed roughly, it would come unhooked sometimes and fall to the ground. Boom. And Sean, upon me talking about this, put a bunch of metal bits on it and screwed it and he's like, this will hold it till we can get another bed. And that's kind of what we're doing at the end of session. I know it's a weird analogy, but that's just the thing that came to my mind. It's like, we're just trying to like hold something together. Let's put a little tape here for now until we open this back up next week, until we can, you know, figure this out more and we can actually resolve the problem, right? We're just gonna kind of tape it back together. And so it's really happening because you don't really feel taped back together at all enough to get through the next week. So this overwhelm is just hitting you like a ton of bricks. And so we need to feel a little taped up. and. The way to feel taped up is, like I said, it could be spending a little bit more time kind of coming down in session. It could be going a little slower. Maybe we're moving too quickly through the trauma work. Or, and this is what I would dig into first, if I was your therapist, is we need more coping skills. We feel completely unable to cope. We don't have the tools needed. And if the ones we have aren't working, I would wanna make sure that you have ways to self-soothe. And I would work through, like my video, I have 25 coping skills you can get on YouTube, search Katie Morton, 25 coping skills pick some from there and try them. And I would have you try out new ones each and every week until we find like three or four that are go-to that we can like jump into and they can help us and we feel okay. Um, another thing I might offer before I move on to the next question, I might offer a transitional object. Now you guys have talked, I've talked with um, about this has been a while, but a transitional object is something that you're given in therapy, to take with you into the world as a way to remind yourself of the support and love you've gotten in therapy. Now, a lot of times uh, therapists will do this when uh, treatment is ending, but I've done it with different people over the years for different reasons. But sometimes that can help you stay contained in regular life so that we can come back and be okay, right? So their regular regular life isn't completely disrupted. We have our transitional object and it's usually something small. Like I had these little uh, sculptures in my office that I would lend out to people or let someone take the thinking putty with them for that week or... um, I'm trying to think of what else. I had this little glass uh, paperweight kind of orb thing. It was like shaped like a heart kind of. Um, Let somebody take that. So there's different things you can like take and then bring back. And that taking and bringing back is like a transitional object, letting you transition out into the world and reminding you that therapy is still happening. Now, there are a lot of different reasons that we can do that and a lot of different reasons that, that we can use those, but that might help you stay contained and maybe feel a little bit better. I don't know. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And that is, hi, Katie, why do I find the thought of my therapist comforting or feeling empathy for me so soothing, yet so uncomfortable? I'm not sure about it it being attached to her. And what's the difference between comfort and attachment? Hmm, Good question. But there's something so weird about it. Last session, I was really dissociating and panicking and her comforting and guiding me gave me such a weird, uncomfortable, yet very comforting feeling. Thanks for all you do. P.S. I'm 18. Okay, cool. Now, this is a good question. The usually... It's an attachment-based response. Now, hear me out. Now, I know it's not, a lot of times when we think of attachment-based, we think, oh, I'm too attached to them. Uh Uh-uh, that's not what I mean. We can have attachment issues in, in our like blueprint that we were given because our parents or whoever took care of us was kind of a trashy parent in one way or another. So we have those attachment issues. So when it comes to relationships in our life, we will act in a way to almost reinforce that attachment issue does that make sense so what i would what i would hypothesize happened to you as a child or younger person is that your your parents were not very emotionally supportive of you meaning that maybe things were good on paper i don't even know if they were but let's say maybe uh you know they put clothes on our back and food in our mouths and a roof over our head and like for all intents and purposes our parents cared for us but they weren't really there for us to talk to for to listen to us to soothe us when we needed or let us know that we're important or we're okay you know all that stuff they weren't able to do that and so the idea of our of our therapist doing the things we wished our parent had can be kind of triggering. And because we never had that healthy, happy experience of being like loved and supported and emotionally, you know, I don't know, held, I guess would be the word or supported is fine too, but we didn't get that. So then when someone gives it to us, we're like, wait, like we want it because we've always wanted it, but we're like, this isn't this isn't right. I don't feel good about this. I don't even know this is so uncomfortable because it's so different and new and I've never had it before. can have all of those thoughts and feelings. This could also come up if we had abuse in our childhood, not just like emotional neglect, which is abuse by the way, but I'm talking like physical or sexual abuse often, or emotional abuse like yelling and shouting, but if a parent was like loving one minute and then abusive the next it can feel uncomfortable to have someone be loving and empathic because we're like when's the next other shoe gonna fall like when are they when is it gonna turn into something painful for me and so it can feel really it can make us really anxious and it can make us really nervous and that could be what we would call like an anxious avoidant attachment now i have a video about the four attachment styles i would encourage you to watch that and see you know what comes up for you see what what you identify with you know what i mean because i think in there will be some of the answers to that but that would probably be why when your therapist is being comforting and soothing and like guiding you that you feel good and then also uncomfortable because you're like wait 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 wait, this isn't i'm not used to this right and we want to push back a little bit now there was a comment on this that hey katie i was also wondering how can one distinguish between feeling safe and comfortable with their therapist and being extremely dependent on them. I sometimes find myself worrying about about how hard it would be for me to deal with certain things if I had to stop therapy. What would you suggest for a healthier attachment style? Now, being safe and comfortable with your therapist and being dependent is very different. And here is the difference. Being safe and comfortable means I'm okay sharing things that I'm dealing with, going through things with them, crying when I need to. I can do that. It's hard, but I do it. And I feel contained there. I feel okay doing it. I don't feel extremely overwhelmed by it. I mean, it can be overwhelming, but it's like, you know, I'm able to show up, be vulnerable as much as I can and share the things that are difficult. That's being comfortable. Being dependent is, oh my God, I don't know what I would do without them. And wanting to, I want to contact them in between session. When session ends, I become dysregulated a little bit where I'm like, oh my God, they're leaving me. Oh my God. And it that, that panic or that abandonment feeling or the dismissive feeling we can get comes up really strong and that would be more of the dependency because we can worry that like what would I do without them I think I would just crumble and fall which isn't true but that means that we feel emotionally dependent upon them and so I think you know you can worry. I don't think it's weird to worry how hard it would be to deal with certain things if you had to stop therapy when you're like, oh my God, I could not go through through this on my own. But if it sends us into kind of panic and when sessions end, or if a therapist mentions like how far we've come, we start to panic and kind of want to sabotage so we can stay in it. If we find any of those behaviors, it's more of a dependency slash attachment issue rather than like a comfort and safe does that make sense? It's just that I know it's kind of nuanced, but that's, that's kind of where I would draw the line. And then someone says, oh, then at the end of that, they said, what would you suggest for a healthier attachment style? To be truthful, processing your past and where we think this kind of dependency or um, emotional volatility, wherever it comes from, If we can figure that out it's healing that that will allow us to then have a healthier attachment style but in the meantime you can kind of count on your therapist to uphold those boundaries like i talked about like earlier is you know, stopping at a certain time, showing up for you, that consistency, that communication, all of that is key to kind of healing and in a way demonstrating a healthier attachment style so that when we are able, we can meet them, you know, where they're at in a way. And we can also process through what's coming up for us as we work towards it. Because it's very common. I feel like almost everybody who gets into therapy and has any trauma is having, has some issue with attachment. And so any therapist worth their salt is going to be able to talk you through and work through it with you and let you know you're not alone and you know, we'll get through it. Now, the other comment on this said, when does it cross the line from really clicking with your therapist and having a genuine healthy relationship to being attached? And that kind of goes back to what I'd said earlier, where it's, you can feel open to sharing what you need to share, even though it's a little uncomfortable. But we're not like thinking about contacting them in between session, feeling dysregulated when session ends, feeling like they're abandoning us, wanting to like have transference in session where we treat them like the parent, maybe our mother or father, or whoever, who didn't treat us well. If we find ourselves doing that a lot, that's kind of indicative of being too attached and and struggling with the therapeutic relationship and boundaries. And it's not bad. I don't bring that up to say it's bad. It's just something that we have to process through. It's what we should work on in therapy. Does that make sense? I hope so. But that's that's that kind of difference, you know, between feeling comfortable and being overly attached or dependent. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And that says, Hi, Katie, are there any real or oh, is there any real therapy work in the beginning when the client comes in every session with a whole bag of stories to tell? My therapist encourages me to talk about anything on my mind or how life has been because she wants to give me that space rather than follow what's on her notes. Hmm. But because I don't see her weekly, I can't afford it. So much happens in between and I always have things to talk about. But if we are always trying to manage present day challenges and crises, when will we get to whatever she has planned? as in the notes or treatment plan, the main bulk of therapy? Or is it in the firefighting conversations, quote unquote firefighting conversations, focusing on what's happening right now? I hope this makes sense. Yes, that makes so much sense. And it's a great, it's a great question. I really think that you need to talk to your therapist about it a little bit, because what I would encourage you to do is let them know that you're worried about this. My anxious patients, for instance, have so many things that they can tell me and talk to me about and so many worries and stories and things. And we do a quick check-in at the beginning, uh, maybe five to 10 minutes max. And then I say, okay, let's move on to more of the meat of things. And we dig into what what we're really trying to work on, right? Maybe the trauma, maybe, um, maybe it's eating disorder stuff, you know, because a lot of people will be honest a lot of my patients will want to use that like opener conversation to like eat up time so that they can kind of put off talking about the hard stuff and so sometimes i'll just hit them with it right away like a couple minutes and i'm like okay so the week was okay let's how's the food how's it going with like i just asked straight up after a quick check-in um because i know they don't want to talk about it and no time like the present let's just jump right in i'm not going to pussyfoot around i'm just going to jump right in and so i would let your therapist know that you're concerned about this that you'd like to get into the things on the treatment plan there's no a lot of times therapists are just feeling us out right to kind of gauge that level of like how far should they push us how fast should they go and I think this is your opportunity to tell your therapist, hey, I'm ready to go. Like, let's get into this. Enough of this check in stuff. I have lots of stuff that happens to me, but I don't feel like we're getting anywhere unless we dig into the deeper stuff. That's okay. Perfectly normal. Just talk to your therapist and let them know. And then chances are next session, they'll jump right in. Um, And it's okay just to say, hey, I feel like we do these like check-ins at the beginning and it turns out being the whole session because you know a lot's happening, but I'd really like to dig into the things that you have notes on and what our treatment plan is. That's fine to say it that way. It's your treatment, it's your time, it's also your money. And you said you can't afford to go more often. We wanna make the most of each and every session. Now, sure, I also wanna put out there that we can all have weeks where we have a crisis and it feels like we can't not talk about that but if we can't afford to go more often then we need to kind of summarize it quickly at the beginning so that we can get into more intensive stuff but i'll even myself i spend one session every couple months where i just have to vent about something that's happening now right and i try to keep it to that i don't i personally don't like to take up too much of my sessions either just talking about what's going on because I can do that with my girlfriends too and so anyway I just want you to know that it is normal to every once in a while I'll spend a whole session talking about a current crisis but if we feel like we're always in a state of crisis even that alone is something that we should be talking about in therapy how I constantly feel like I'm in a state of crisis and like where is that coming from right because that's actually more important than the real quote-unquote crisis that we're experiencing does that make sense and that way we can kind of start moving through the bigger things so that we can feel better, okay? I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number five. This was an interesting question. It says, hi Katie, ethical question to ask. What if you had clients who did very bad things or shameful things? Should they mask it when they go to therapy or just say everything into, the, into detail? Like what if a client says they're abusing a protected class or they admitted to murder? Now this isn't even ethical, this is actually legal meaning that I could lose my license if I don't report abuse. So if you are abusing a protected class, and a protected class is uh, children, elders, or dependent adults, meaning anybody over the age of 18, right, the rest are children, anybody over the age of 18 that requires, that's dependent on someone else for their care. So someone who doesn't have the ability to take care of themselves would be a dependent adult. If anybody's being abused, I am a mandated reporter. I'm legally mandated by the laws in California and soon in the state of Texas when I get my license here to report it. And even actually now that I'm in Texas, I could still I could still report it because I'm still a mandated reporter federally. So anyway, I believe so. Actually, I should double check that before I say it. But anyway, I would have to report it and I would have to let you know that I have to report it. Um, So. I mean, should you say if you're doing things that are hurtful? I mean, people should know because that abuse should be stopped immediately. But if you're worried about someone reporting, a therapist is going to have to. And then admitting to murder, it's different. I don't, I have to dig into my law and ethics handbook, but I know that if I I have duty to warn which is like through tarasoff you can look up tarasoff it's t-a-r-a-s-o-f-f and it was because of a case of um a woman who was killed and the therapist knew because the patient had told them ahead of time and so if we have um an identifiable victim and you know, we have like a timeline and we have all this information, almost like in the case of suicide where we have to like 5150 or protect our patients as much as possible. We have to do the same. We have tear us off. So we have the duty to warn, meaning I can break confidentiality to tell this person that you're wanting to kill, that you're going to kill them. But if something has already happened, so let's say you've stole or committed murder. I don't believe I'm mandated to report that. I, again, I'm sure every state is different and I'd have to really dig into my law and ethics. Um, but I think it's more about the the warning of it because I can though if they do get enough evidence, I can be called upon in court. Um, and get a court order. And I forget how much I can share. There's limitations depending on what it is. And you have to sign off on some of it. And there's all sorts of weird uh, legal stuff. But in, in reality, I'm going to report abuse if I hear about it. If it's past abuse, I don't have to report it unless you're still around someone in that protected class. I think it could be a threat to someone currently. Then I report it or if you are homicidal meaning you're going to murder someone or you're you're thinking about it and you have a plan and think the threat is imminent then I will warn that person so those are kind of the things I guess there's a ton of legal stuff when it comes to being a therapist or any kind of mental health professional or health professional as a whole even teachers are mandated reporters there's a lot of jobs where we have licenses in our states where we are held to this higher standard and we because we would be the ones to maybe know about something first you know, the, we should be reporting it so that people can be protected, right? Okay, let's move on to question number six. And that question says, Hey, Katie, how do I be okay with being myself in therapy? Hmm. I have social anxiety, so I always have trouble talking in session. Even answering simple questions is hard. But last session, I was able to open up more than ever before and just be myself, like how I would be with someone I know well and trust. Now I'm so nervous about what my therapist thinks of me and I'm starting to regret opening up. Hmm, interesting. I think part of my problem is that I don't really like myself, so it's hard to believe that my therapist isn't judging me. Interesting. This is probably a stupid question, but is it okay to truly just be myself in therapy? Thanks for all that you do. Okay, to answer your question short, in a short way, yes, it's okay to truly be yourself in therapy. Therapy is a judgment-free zone. But what is really great and interesting and what makes therapy just amazing, is that shit comes up. Because the therapeutic relationship like opens us up to this whole other way of thinking. And our real life stuff, not a whole other way of thinking, I guess it like opens us up so that our real life issues are presented in therapy. So they come up and we're like, shit, it's here also. Yes, everywhere we go, there we are. As my old therapist used to love to say, you can run away, but wherever you go, there you are. So Yes, it's okay to truly be yourself. And here's what I would encourage you to do in session. Let your therapist know this is coming up for you. Let them know that you feel nervous, you know, what they think of you and you regret opening up and and how this applies in your regular life too. Like you see this happening and now it's happening here and you want it to stop. I know that sounds really simple, but that's honestly the truth. If we just give our therapist the information let them know what's coming up for us and why we maybe have trouble talking or what we're feeling bad about or what we're worried about, then they can help us with it. Then they can dig in with us. They can ask questions, guide us toward a greater understanding of why we feel this way. Now, obviously, some of this is coming from social anxiety. But where does that social anxiety come from? What is it that we're so worried about? What's this judgment? What, What was it like growing up? I would Be curious how school used to be. And if we ever remember a time not being socially anxious, maybe we don't, maybe we do. Does anybody in our family have anxiety? Hmm, How do they react to it? Hmm. Okay. I would dig into that. Then I would dig into like ways we can build up our self-confidence. And I would start with small things. Like I have that whole video about building self-confidence. I would encourage you to check it out. You can just get on YouTube and search Katie Morton self-confidence and it'll come up. But for my patients who are super socially anxious, a lot of times I'll ask them to just today when you're walking around, make eye contact and smile at a stranger. Now I know people are sometimes wearing masks. If you're outdoors, hopefully you have the opportunity, you know, to smile and show the smile, but making eye contact with a stranger and smiling is nice. Or then taking a step further, I'll have my patients say good morning to someone they don't know. (gasps) I know, makes us anxious, but it's kind of that practice of putting ourselves out there and challenging it. Because the thing about anxiety is that it grows and gets larger and more invasive in our life the more we give into it. So the more we push back against it and prove to our brain that it's not that scary, that people don't hate us and aren't judging us constantly, the the better able we'll be to overcome it and go out into the world and not feel so anxious. And yes, I know it's hard. And yes, I know it's not ideal, but you can do it. And then, as far as what I talk about in that one video about building self confidence, some of it's just being kind to others. We get as much out of it as we put into it. And another is, you know, built what we call building mastery in the DBT world or dialectical behavior therapy world. And that means like doing something over and over until you get better at it. This could be like I want to learn how to play guitar, so you start learning how to play guitar. Or maybe I want to master, you know a certain recipe, or I'd like to get better at public speaking. So I jo- join Toastmasters. Or so- I'm just saying like random things we want to get better at. It could be any number of things. But if we put in the effort and we start to build mastery and get better, then that builds internal confidence. And we're like, oh, I'm good at that. I wonder what else I could be good at. And it starts to help us feel better and less less nervous and less judgmental about ourselves, especially in social situations. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. And yeah, bring that up in therapy and let them dig into it because that's slowly how we'll be okay being ourselves. I know it's hard, I know we worry, but it does get better, okay? Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And that question is, What does the therapist have in place for their clients in case something happens to them? The therapist, for example, a therapist dies or has a a sudden emergency where they have to quit therapy. Do they have confidential information that is then able to be passed on to someone else so that the client doesn't start over completely? Also, do they have a person or persons in mind to be able to possibly be the new therapist for them should something happen? Also, my therapist has her own private practice. So if something happens, do you think she has measures in place for someone to contact her clients if something happens? I know I can ask her. I was wondering if there's a common practice in place for therapists to deal with this. There actually is. Now, we're not mandated to have this as far as I know. Maybe different states have different laws, but in California, I do not recall ever learning that this is mandated, but I do know that there are there's like a structure around it. Now, most therapists in their last will and testament, meaning when you die, you have a will, right? We have instructions in there as to what should happen with our patients. And I watched this play out. Actually, I think I might've told you guys, one of the psychiatrists I used to work with, he, this was horrible, but he went in for his, um, He's like physical with his doctor and they made him do a stress test in the office to check his heart and he had a heart attack and he passed away and it was devastating. And I shared patients with him, obviously, and they in his will and testament had already had someone else in mind and they'd already signed off that they would do it. And here's what happens. The office assistants and the time was his wife was like his office manager, thank God. So she called the patients and let them know of his passing and let them know that this was the next psychiatrist that he had like, you know, kind of bequeathed his practice to. And if you would like to see them, you can call and make an appointment and let them know that you're coming, you know, from his office. And then once you sign the release, we'll send over all the documentation. Obviously you as a patient still hold your confidentiality, meaning even if I will and bequeath my practice to, let's say my friend Alexa, for instance, cause she's amazing, it doesn't mean that you're just going to get a call from her and that she's going to take you on. You as a patient have to decide to move on with that person. And in doing so, you can call and make an appointment, you sign off the release, and whoever the executor on my will is will give them all of the paperwork and give them your file. And that is the way, best way we can kind of protect your confidentiality while at the same time ensuring that you have, you know, care that is set up. Now, I'll be honest, a lot of therapists, especially younger therapists, such as myself, don't always have this in place. And I've seen that happen um, with a couple, not not like anybody I know, thank God, but a couple of my colleagues who are a little bit older have had this happen, um, where someone dies unexpectedly in an accident, and they don't have anybody set up, you know, to take care of that. Now, usually, your patient files are kept in a locked... Mine's is in a locked filing cabinet, and I don't know how you would get access to them except through whoever the executor of the will is. So you'd probably have to find that out. It'd be messy, and that's why I really encourage any mental health professional to have something in place to to put that into writing so that your patients aren't left starting over. But for many, unfortunately, therapists, you know, because I don't think we're mandated to do it. If anybody knows different, let me know. But I was digging through my law and ethics book and I didn't see anything about it. Doesn't, and again, every state might be different, but usually it's all locked up and protected. And then the only way it can be unlocked is usually through another professional that's given access to it. Again, they can't go through your file because of confidentiality, but they will be able to get it if you sign it, sign a, you know, a release of authorization and you make an appointment with them, then they'll get to have access and they'll take your file and they can work with you. Or if you want to move on to someone else, they can pop that in the mail and get that over to your new provider. But that is really a sucky thing to have happen and logistically it's a nightmare and I know it's hard for everybody involved. But because of confidentiality, it's really difficult for documents and things to to be dispersed appropriately. But a lot of the good news is that a lot of therapists and psychiatrists and stuff are using online resources to to file away our medical paperwork meaning that if we have access to like the portal like my mom has this online portal for all of her health insurance stuff and Sean and I used to have it through UCLA I want to say maybe it was USC but anyway back in LA and you could just get in and I could ship the files over via email to a new provider so that gives us more ownership over our like client files or patient files so that we can share them and hopefully you know things like that will be put in place where when someone passes away the that company can be like the intermediary and you just sign and they like ship it over so you don't have to worry so much about like paper files being being shared and having you know our confidentiality protected let's move on to question number eight and it says lots of questions about files it says, Hi, Katie, I'm wondering after a patient ends therapy, how long do you keep their notes? And what if they come back after that time? Now, I don't know if each state has their own rules around it. But I feel like and I, you guys, I'm just going off a memory here. So heaven help us. But I feel like mine in California, I had to keep patient records, I want to say it's like six or seven years, or until they're 18, if you see kids, until they're 18. And it's like, what, whichever is longer. So honestly, people usually keep files for a really long time. And if someone came back after the the files had been destroyed, you would not that you'd have to start all over, because I mean, we're human, so we'd probably still remember some things about you. But we would essentially, on paper, be starting completely over. But it's a really long time. I mean, so much would have changed in your life obviously like the history stuff wouldn't have, but that, that's really how, how it works. So if you end therapy and you wait like 10 years, it's possible that your therapist does not have your paperwork anymore and your file. Although I will be honest, even personally, the only reason I I checked that before we moved, that's why I think it's, I think it's seven years, but I could be wrong. But um, I checked it before we moved because some of the files I didn't have to take with me and some I did. Spoilers, most of them I took anyway, because I was like, well, you know, and so I didn't Uh, shred any of them or get rid of them. But we do have to dispose of them in a proper way, either through a medical company that does the shredding, or we have to, you know, crisscross shred them ourselves and make sure that they're disposed of in a proper way so that confidentiality is not broken. But yeah, every, I'd assume every state or every country would have different laws, but essentially you err on the side of keeping them longer rather than getting rid of them. And yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually gotten rid of any patient files. You guys and I've been in practice for. Oh God, 13, 14 years. So that's a lot of files. But anyway, yeah, we just, that's, and that's just the minimum, obviously, like I said, like I haven't gotten rid of any of mine, but you know, we're only legally mandated for a certain amount of time. And so that would be what would happen. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. And it says, hi, Katie, is it possible to have quote unquote symptoms that aren't really symptoms? I feel like I'm now hyperanalyzing analyzing everything I do, thinking that maybe it's a symptom, but I wonder if some of them are just my habits and not a sign of mental illness. For example, when I rub one nail under another, it feels physically uncomfortable if I don't do it. Is it a compulsion or just something weird that I do? Feeling like I need to check my doors multiple times before going to bed when I'm home alone? That's compulsion. Or normal, normal part of being a girl in this world? Hmm. Feeling like I need to go through things several times to make sure I didn't mess anything up or miss anything. For example, scanning old family photos and making sure I didn't miss any, or going through donation boxes several times before donating them. I'm 22 and I haven't seen a therapist yet because I don't have insurance and my parents don't really believe that mental health is a big deal. Oh, so frustrating. But I'm pretty sure I've dealt with anxiety my whole life. And now I'm wondering about OCD. Thank you so much for your videos. It was the first time I felt validated for feeling the way that I do. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I could be there for you when you needed it and offer you some much needed validation. Now, when it comes to these symptoms that you're having, they do sound like symptoms, by the way. This hyper analyzing, checking, rechecking. I guess my question for you, whether or not this is OCD, one easy way to check is to not do the thing. Are we able to not do it? Could we... I don't know, donate a box without looking through it again? Could we not check our door so we check it once and that's it? Or does the anxiety build and build and build and we worry so much that something terrible is going to happen if we don't do that thing? That is what OCD feels like. To not do that thing, something horrible, we worry so much that something horrible is going to happen. And so that's kind of an easy way to check. But I would really encourage you, so you're 22. I would encourage you to look into seeing a therapist. A lot of them work on a sliding scale, even BetterHelp or Talkspace, online resources. It's offer, offer cheaper support. It's not cheap necessarily, but it's cheaper support and it could be more financially doable for you. But please reach out. And honestly, hmm, yeah, there's gotta be something. Because I feel like there are a lot of different ways to get uh, get help if we need it, and ways to make it more affordable. I don't know if you have a job, but that would be something I could s- you'd start on. And I'm surprised you don't have insurance because you're only 22. I wouldn't be so. I thought it would be through your parents until until you're 25 or something like that. I thought that was the case, but maybe I'm old and forgetting the rules. But I know that they extended the age because when I was younger, it was 21, I was kicked off and that was just what it was. Um, But now I thought it was a little bit longer, but either way, I would look into either getting a low cost insurance that has some mental health coverage or looking at better help or Talkspace to talk to someone because I really suspect OCD, but you'd have to do that little test and tell me what you learn. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now there's a comment on this says, uh, what about, so they're asking like a follow-up and they said, I feel like I want to dissociate more often, especially when I'm overwhelmed with intense emotions of sadness and despair and cry uncontrollably. I just don't want to feel this horrible pain. Also, I want to dissociate as some sort of acknowledgement or validation of my trauma. Interesting, because I'm afraid it may have not been that bad and I'm not actually suffering. Hmm. Look at all that invalidation and judgment. If I don't really dissociate that much or have any flashbacks, is wanting to dissociate and even deliberately triggering myself because of that common? Oh, because of that? Is it common and something I should talk about in therapy? Yes, it's super common, and yes, you should talk about it in therapy. I've had lots of patients dissociate for different reasons. Like one of my patients used to like to dissociate because it was like a, a break from the pain right? Trauma is exhausting and it can feel really uncomfortable. And so dissociation can feel better. And she used to do that on purpose, purposely trigger herself herself into dissociating so that she could just get a little break. And we talked a lot about that and processed a lot of that. And was coming up with other coping skills and other ways to soothe that wasn't dissociation because what had happened then, she was triggering it so often that It was like dangerous for her to drive and she would struggle to come back and dissociation was like happening more and more and more, even without her triggering it. And so we kind of had to get it under control. So it didn't feel so reckless for her. Um, And then you can also, you know, obviously dissociate because of trauma, like you don't even trigger it, it just happens. But, um, but yeah, in this case, it sounds like more of a validation, but please bring it up with your therapist because it's really, really common and understanding why it's happening, and why you're doing it. And part of that, like, uh, minimization of the trauma and acting like maybe it wasn't that big of a deal, like all of that shit talking you're kind of doing to yourself, it, we need to, we need to identify it, call it what it is and work to change it little by little. And a lot of that has to do with kind of like the shame of trauma, like shame, embarrassment and guilt that kind of hang out together and like send us into a spiral when we've uh, had PTSD or complex PTSD. And so, Yeah, I I assume it's in there and untangling that that will help us better understand why we're dissociating why we're doing this, and kind of get us back on track and help us feel like we're we have more control. Because again, those grounding techniques and self soothing techniques can really, really help. And if you don't know, grounding techniques can be anything from like looking around the room and like how many things in your space are green how many things in your space are blue tell me how many count the number um or we can go through the alphabet tell me something in your area that starts with the letter a then the letter b you know all of that kind of thing even like snapping rubber bands on your wrist or squeezing ice cubes or taking a cold shower um going through your five senses there's a ton of different ways to kind of help i've also heard from one of the the members wow katie One member of our community, holy shmamolies, who said that bergamot is a grounding smell. And so having bergamot essential oil in like a little roller ball can be really helpful. I've also had patients use peppermint um, or orange oil, like some strong smells to help bring them back. That can be really helpful. Any of those things can help. Okay, you got this. Okay, moving on to our final question. Question number 10 says, hey, Katie, I recently set up an appointment with my therapist after a year of not seeing her. I am a frontline healthcare worker and the burnout is real. I can't even imagine. I've been struggling with postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression and some mild suicidal ideation. I've never experienced anything like this and it's honestly scary. Anyway, now that I've made this appointment, I'm suddenly feeling like I'm being dramatic and none of this is a big deal because I know everyone is struggling. Oh, because everyone's struggling means you can't? Hmm. Oh, the caretakers in our world have a tough time taking and receiving the care themselves. Okay, I'm having a hard time coming up with what I am even going to say when she inevitably says what's going on. I already struggle to be honest in session and not downplay. I'm also worried about traumatizing her with the details of my work over the last 18 months. Oh, look at you, such a caretaker. Typically, I know that you should be able to tell your therapist anything, but this is such a shared trauma. So I know she's feeling it too. I feel awful adding to it for her. Hmm. How do I balance sparing her the graphic details while still dealing with it myself? Okay, I thought this was a great question. And I really wanted to add it in here because our poor frontline workers are being traumatized daily. And that was actually a question kind of in a comment that I wanted to add in where it said, coming from a chronic illness patient, all of the frontline workers are awesome. Big question here, are all of the frontline workers plus the staff that cleans the hospitals being traumatized? And the answer is, unfortunately, Yes, seeing death and dealing with the, the fear and the worry over this last year and a half. I mean, yes, they're just being traumatized. There's so much worry and fear and death happening. It's just, it's overwhelming. And so we need to send them all a little bit of extra love and support. And that's why anybody working in a grocery store, delivery people, um, from you know, hospital workers, any kind of healthcare worker, uh, EMTs, police officers, we need to be a little bit nicer to them and just a little bit more respectful and let them know that we, we appreciate them because they've been showing up for us, even in this really, really difficult time. Okay, let's dig into this question now. Okay, um, first of all, I don't know why you feel like you are not deserving of the care that you offer to others. I'm just putting it out there, just asking, because you've been putting, showing up for people for a year and a half, and you're feeling burnt out. Honestly, the very easy way to open up your therapy session when they say what's going on is to say, uh, I'm a frontline healthcare worker in the middle of a pandemic. It's been a shit show. That's all, period. Full sentence, full stop. That's it. That's why you're there. You're feeling overwhelmed. You need a place to dump all that you're experiencing every day and a place to vent about it and get some support for your postpartum anxiety and depression and even mild suicidal ideation. You're feeling overwhelmed. You just need some support. And yeah, that's even easy to say what's going on. I'm feeling overwhelmed, I need some support. I've been in the front lines for a year and a half of what feels like a war and I need someone just to listen to me. But the thing that's gonna be hard for you and what I really want you to push back against the discomfort and maybe judgment that comes along with it is in you accepting the help now I know that that sounds crazy and you're like but I did I reached out I made an appointment I know but you're already trying to like kind of weasel your way out of it like I I'm being dramatic you know none of this is a big deal everyone's struggling I'm here to tell you Even as someone who's struggling, also I'm struggling, but I show up for my patients. This last year and a half, when I was still in California and still seeing my patients online, I showed up for them. Just because I'm struggling doesn't mean that my job doesn't call on me, and doesn't mean I shouldn't take care of myself and then also reach out to my therapist and see. Like, I'll do my own like work and support on my end, but I'm still going to show up for you, and your therapist is too. And just because you're struggling. Or just because everyone else is struggling doesn't mean that you can't struggle. Does that make sense? Like what have what have they said before? Like it's not pie. Like there's not like limited amounts of help or understanding or support. Like you can have a hard time too. It's okay. It sucks. And I wish that we weren't all struggling. But just because everyone else is struggling doesn't mean that you don't have a right to either. So get the support. I'm proud of you for reaching out and speaking up because God You've got to be burnt out. And thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you for showing up for your patients. Thank you for for being there. Because I feel grateful that I have not needed to go to the hospital, that I have not had something happen to me like this where I, you know, where that I necessitated that level of care. But I know people who have had to go to the hospital and I'm grateful to each and every one of you for being there and showing up and helping them when they needed it most. You do not get paid enough for the work that you do. And I'm really grateful to you. So thank you. And now allow people in my field to help you, okay? You have an expertise that I can't do. And I have an expertise that you can't do. Let us show up for you. Let, speak up, talk. It's okay. You don't even have to know what to say. I mean, fuck, man. The last few videos I've made about COVID, I think I've made three in total. I had no idea what I was going to say. I was just like, I got to talk about this because I'm feeling overwhelmed. And, blah, 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 blah. and that was what came out do the same. It's okay to verbal vomit this. You just need somewhere to go where you can talk about everything because it's just been so scary. It's been so overwhelming. And there's been no space left for you. So you've made some space and some time. And I'm glad that you reached out to your therapist. Just do your best. And if there are certain things you want to mention, make some notes in your phone so you don't have to remember them in a the moment. It's okay. But I'm proud of you. It'll get better. Thank you so much for all of your help and service over the last year and a half. And honestly, for your whole career, I'm always thankful to healthcare workers in general, because, you know, we come to you when we need you most and you show up for us and that's wonderful. So you got this. You don't need to worry about someone else. You don't need to worry about traumatizing your therapist. Trust me, we've heard crazy stories over our entire career. We can handle it. We can hold it. Like I said, we'll do our self-care on the back end. Let us do that. Let us show up for you. It's part of what we do. So yeah, I want you, every time you try to second guess yourself, I want you to say, I can get help too. I am deserving of help too. I offer help and I'm deserving of it. Imagine that. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening this week. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions and for all of your support. As always, our community is the bomb. And thank you to all of our frontline workers, all of the healthcare uh, delivery, uh, grocery store, pharmacy, anybody I might be missing, the farmers, the people still showing up and working through the pandemic, even people still working who didn't get a break. Thank you all for showing up, all of the people in. That make our life still possible during these difficult times. Thank you for being there. Thank you all for being work. part of the community. I love you. you. Have a wonderful rest of your week. And I will see you next time. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask. Kate.